Scripture. Uh, God's Word is given to us this morning from Luke 9, verses 1 through 6, as well as 10 through 17. Please read with me. You'll find this in your bulletin. And he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And he said to them, take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. And whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. On the return, the apostles told him all that they had done. And he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. When the crowds learned it, they followed him. And he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Now the day, the day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said to him, Send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. But he said to them, You give them something to eat. They said, We have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless we are to go and buy food for all these people. For there were about 5,000 men, and he said to his disciples, Have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so, and had them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up, 12 baskets of broken pieces. The word of our Lord. Please pray with me. Lord God, we thank you that uh, you revealed yourself in very specific ways to your 12 disciples. And thank you, Lord, that you reveal yourself to us today through your written word. Lord, we crave and we need what you have for us. And I pray that your spirit would guide our hearts and minds so that we can truly receive your truth. And likewise, I pray, Lord, that you would please illuminate Pastor Andrew as he preaches your word to us. Lord, that our trust in you would be challenged, encouraged, and strengthened, but also, Lord, that we would go away with greater enjoyment of you and the amazing love that you have for us. We pray this in your name. Amen. Please be seated. Thanks. Well, good morning. You guys are the smart group that slept in your extra hour. Uh, time change weekend. I felt like I woke. Uh, great. Uh, it's only an hour, but man, messes with you. Uh, great to be here and open this passage with you. Let's start with uh, a study from the Harvard Business School, 2018. They undertook a first-of-its-kind study uh, of over 4,000 millionaires in the United States, asking them how much money it would take to make them happy. So each millionaire was asked to report how much they currently had, and then they were asked to rate their happiness on a scale of 1 to 10, and then they were asked to give a response, how much more would they need in order to hit 10 on the happiness scale? 13% of these 4,000 folks that were surveyed 
Uh, only 13% said they had all they needed. They, they, w- they didn't need any more to be happy. Uh, 26% uh, said they needed 10 times more. Uh, 24% said they only needed five times more. And uh, 23% said if they, what they had was doubled, then they would be happy. Uh, I am not saying this to, to pick on millionaires, uh, but there is something here that I think touches at the heart of all of us, uh, and that is this. It, we struggle with satisfaction. We struggle with contentedness. You know, part of the problem is no matter if you have $100 million in the bank or $10 million in the bank or only a million in the bank, uh, no matter what you have, there's always somebody that has more. And, and, and so you look out by way of comparison and you say, if I had that thing, then I would be happy. And the same is true in other areas of life, not just simply financial. Uh, sometimes it's familial. If I had a spouse or if I had a child or if I had that spouse or that child, uh, then I would be happy. If I had a job that brought satisfaction, if I had, a, um, if I had uh, gifts and abilities that would allow me to do this or that or the other thing, then I would be happy. We're always struggling to find satisfaction. And part of what this passage is designed to to point us to is to the source of true satisfaction. It's designed to take our eyes off our circumstances, as we're going to see in several different ways, take our eyes off of our circumstances and put them onto Jesus, who ultimately is our source of satisfaction. It's an interesting story. You know, we've been talking about the miraculous uh, and remember Luke at the very beginning of the gospel saying, I am writing these things to you in order that you might be certain of the faith that you have, in order that you might have confidence uh, to follow Jesus and to be his disciple. Uh, This is a miracle that is attested to by all four Gospels. It's one of the only ones that is in all four Gospels. And I think that there's a reason for that, as we will come to later on. But at the same time, it's not one of the, the Gospels or one of the miracles that you often think about. When you think about like a miracle, you think about Jesus raising the dead, Lazarus, or the things they just seem to have about casting out demons. You think about some of these different things. They just seem to have a little more juice to them than just simply making bread and feeding people. Uh, it, it certainly is a miracle, but It doesn't seem to have the same juice. It's not one of the things that we think about right away. But why is it then that the disciples really grasp onto this? The ones that were writing the Gospels, why is it that imprinted and uh, from a human perspective anyway, impacted them in such a great way? Because I think they understood how important this was in giving them the direction in terms of satisfaction, giving them the direction in terms of their confidence to go forward as disciples. And so I want to look at it from that perspective. What things do we need to remember, or are we invited to remember, that bring confidence to us as we come 
to Jesus. Three things for you. The first one is this. It's kind of the crowds. If you think about the crowds and how they come to Jesus, the first thing that we see uh, is that uh, when we come to Jesus, there is a welcome for everybody who comes. You see that in in verse uh, 11, when the crowds learned it, they followed him or them, the disciples, and he, Jesus, welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Now, that stands out to us just with the circumstances. The circumstances are Jesus has been engaged in his ministry. Uh, it's been very full. Uh, he has just sent the disciples out on their own little ministry forays, and they have now come back. Uh, they're tired. They're in need of refreshment and healing. Furthermore, both Matthew and Mark record this, Matthew chapter 14, Mark chapter 6, John 6 as well, if you're interested. Uh, They have recorded that John the Baptist has just died, and the word of that has come from John's disciples to Jesus. So they are in a point of depletion at this point. They've been out serving, uh, they've gotten bad news, their friend, the forerunner, has died, and so Jesus is seeking to go away with the disciples and have a bit of a retreat. He's brought them out into the wilderness to a desolate place in order that they may be refreshed. But the crowds say, we want to come too. And they follow Jesus around. It's interesting, some of, the, uh, some of the accounts tell us that Jesus and his disciples like took a boat uh, across the lake to get to where they were going. The, disciples, the crowds like ran after Jesus. You can kind of picture this thing where they're going after Jesus. And so you would expect that Jesus would say, hey, can you just give us a few minutes? Can you just let us have a break? Can you just let us be refreshed? I mean, been running, you know, burning the candle at both ends, but he doesn't. He welcomes them. He speaks to them of the kingdom of God, and he cures their diseases. He heals them of the pain that they brought to them because he has compassion on them. We're told this in Matthew and Mark. He sees the crowds. He sees that they are like sheep without a shepherd, and he is filled with compassion for all who come to him in pain. And this is such an encouraging thing for us because each one of us here share several things in common. One, you know, our time is die someday. We recognize that. We, we know that, that you know, our time is limited in terms of breathing. No matter how old you are, no matter where you are, we recognize that. And we recognize that the days of our lives are marked by troubles. They're marked by pain. Job says, like sparks fly upward, uh, so our days are are marked by trouble. It's all kinds of different pain that we have, that we experience over the course of our life. For some of us, it's physical pain. We've experienced that this week. Spent the week in the hospital with our daughter Lydia, who's still there, uh, just dealing with the effects of, of physical pain. Some of you know that, diagnosis, disease, chronic illness, talk about disability uh, in our Sunday school class, physical, mental. We we recognize that we have this kind of pain, circumstantial pain. A lot of our friends who who live in Tennessee have experienced that kind of circumstantial pain as uh, tornadoes 
ripped through. There's cultural pain. You know, we're in this political season and we are all sort of aware of the cultural pain that we have, uh, racial, ethnic, all of these different things, pain points in our culture. We even experience pain in church, you know, congregational pain, struggle with other members, disappointment by leaders. This is all part of our life, and the crowds with their pain, they're coming to Jesus, and they're saying, do you have anything for us? And he welcomes them. And then I want you to note this, he, he speaks to them of the kingdom, and he cures their disease. There's a sense in which we, and uh, uh, there's a sense in which we, we, we feel one side of that equation or another. Uh, as people come to us with pain, uh, we either want to address the pain or oftentimes we, we want to give them a truth about that pain. Uh, Jesus does both. He brings these things together. He speaks to them of the kingdom. You know, notice he, he encourages people to look above their circumstances, to look above their pain, and he wants them to recognize that there is a bigger kingdom. He doesn't encourage them to make Rome great again or make Israel great again. He doesn't focus on their, their current problems, you know, and better socialism isn't what's going to solve your problems. He says, there is a kingdom. There is a kingdom of heaven, and this is where your hope lies. And at the same time, then, he steps in and he heals. Uh, he heals him. He deals with the physical effects of it. He doesn't just say, wait, it's going to all get better. He, he actually moves to ameliorate, to heal, to uh, address some of the pain that they are feeling. Now, Jesus doesn't heal everybody uh, over the course of his time on earth, and we have to wrestle with this. You know, why is it that some people have their, their physical pain or their circumstantial pain dealt with in ways that are different than other people? Uh, those are bigger questions. I can't address all of those right now. But I, I want you to see that both for Jesus and the disciples, you notice they went on this preaching ministry. They went preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. This is why people are frustrated with Jesus, because if you tend toward the, the liberal side of things, and I'm using broad categories here, we want to deal with the physical. We want to deal with the social. We want to deal with the here and now. We want to bring, bring the gospel into that. Uh, on the other side, if, if you tend to be more conservative, you, you, you may tend to say, no, what people need is to be saved from their sins. What people need to recognize is their uh, alienation from God. And what Jesus says is we need both. We, we need the truth about the human condition. We need the truth about our relationship with God. We need the truth about the kingdom as well as we need to move to address the real pain that people have in this earth. And that's why for many, Jesus is, is too liberal for the conservatives, and he's too conservative for the liberals. But that's because he's not interested in those categories. He's interested in the kingdom. That's what he came to inaugurate. He's interested in his rule and his reign and being the king and not fitting our categories. So what's it like to come to Jesus as the crowd? You come to somebody who has power and authority. You come to somebody who is inaugurating a kingdom, a kingdom of righteousness, joy, 
uh, peace, righteousness, peace, joy in the Holy Ghost. That's the kingdom of God, Paul says in Romans. And we are encouraged to come to this king. Now, secondly, I, I want you to notice what it's like to be sent by Jesus. And this is where we really come into contact with the disciples. What's interesting about this passage, though we can draw things, uh, you know, these observations that we have about the crowds coming to Jesus, I don't believe that that is the primary point of this passage. I think this passage is for disciples. Uh, It's for people who have come to Jesus and said, I am following hard after you. I believe, help my unbelief. Uh, I, I want to be as close to you as my rabbi as I can. Uh, I am determined to follow Jesus. And I think that's part of the reason why the disciples uh, writing the, the Gospels were so impacted by this, and each one of them included this in their Gospel account, because we are filled with questions, and we are filled with doubt, and we are filled with our own sense of insufficiency and inadequacy And what we find out is that Jesus is enough. You know, a lot of passages when we read about Jesus' interaction, it'll say things like, the crowds were astonished, or they were amazed at his teaching. It doesn't say that here. What we're left with, though, are 12 baskets uh, of leftover food when there was barely any to begin with. Twelve baskets, one for each of those disciples, one for each disciple to have something tangibly in his arms to walk away and to know that Jesus is enough, that Jesus will send me with nothing, at least from an outer standpoint, but that he is all-sufficient to meet not only my needs, but to use me to meet the needs of others, to use me to extend the welcome, to use me to preach the gospel and heal diseases. This is what each disciple uh, walks away with, and I think this is the central point of this passage. Let me just make a couple of observations. The first is this, and I've alluded to it. Uh, part of the reason why I included the first six verses is we have this, uh, this repeated mantra here. He sends them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. Again, always that balance. Proclaim the kingdom and heal. You know, speak truth about who Jesus is, his nature, Christology, anthropology, theology, all of those things, and heal. Step in. Address needs. Be very practical and tangible in how you are going about living your lives. But he says to them, take nothing for your journey. No staff, no bag, no bread, no money. And do not have two tunics. This was very unusual for itinerant preachers in that day. They would go about. They would have these things because they were itinerant. But Jesus says, there is an urgency to what I am sending you. You don't have time to get all this stuff together. And you have to go, and you have to speak, and you have to do these things. And part of what I want to show you is it's not about you. 
It's not about what you have. It's not about your gifts. It's not about uh, your ability to support yourself. It's not about those things. I am going to work through you, though you have nothing, because that's the point. And this is what is so encouraging to us, and this is what is at the heart of the gospel, is that we do not bring anything to Jesus. We don't bring our righteousness. We don't bring our our faultiness. We don't bring it to Jesus as qualifications for him accepting us. We bring it to Jesus to lay it at his feet, both our good deeds and our wickedness. We lay it at the feet and we say, Jesus, we need you to be our all in all. We need you to be our supply. We need you to be our strength. And and this is exactly what Jesus wants them to see. And they they come back and they tell Jesus all the things that they've done. Uh, They tell Jesus about the success that they have. And then he wants to remind them again. So here they are out in this desolate place, this wilderness. Uh, They have five loaves, two fishes uh, that they're able to scrounge up. Uh, Because the crowd is gathered in in a hurried fashion, they didn't have the resources. There's not town close by. There's not money where they could get. There's nothing that they have. But Jesus says, do you remember? Do you remember how you came to me? You came to me with nothing. Do you remember how I sent you? I sent you with nothing. You have all the resource that you need because I'm in your midst. I am with you. You have this impossible task that you think you cannot do, namely getting food for somewhere between five and 20,000 people. Culturally, you know, they counted men. There were most likely women and children there. We don't know what proportion that they were there. Uh, Jesus feeds them all, even though only the men were counted. Uh, He feeds all of them. It's an impossible task. You don't have the resources to do this. But that's the point. I have all the resources, Jesus says. I have the resources that you need. You give them something to eat. You feed them. How are we going to do this, Jesus? How am I going to take care of my family? How am I going to take care of Uh, A a group of people in a church, how am I going to care for my neighbors? How am I going to love my employees well? How am I going to, you know, be a citizen in this country? I, I don't, I can't do that. No, you can't. You, You have nothing in and of yourself, but you have me, Jesus says. And that is everything that you need. And this is the and, and I think this is why the disciples, they're putting together the Gospels. Remember that feeding of the 5,000? Yeah, I know he raised the dead, all of this. But this is the promise. This is the promise to us as we go out and seek to talk about the kingdom and bring the gospel to bear in people's lives in real tangible ways. We don't see how we're going to get it done. But Jesus says, I have all that you need. You give them something to eat. And there are two other things that I love about this. One is, it is just so ordinary. You know, I mentioned, you know, some of these other miracles, they've got a little more juice to them, raising people from the dead, casting out demons, all of that. There's a, you know, a, a 
something super powered about those things. I mean, this is just breaking bread. Breaking bread, passing it around. It's, it's very, very ordinary. It's very, uh, it's very commonplace. Now, granted, there's a lot of people, and it was a real miracle, and it's like, holy cow, you just fed all of those people. So I mean, I'm not saying that it's not supernatural, but I love the fact that it's just an ordinary thing because most of our lives, we're not going to be raising the dead, and we're not going to be casting out demons, but we are going to be feeding people. We're going to be open in our homes for hospitality, sometimes in temporal ways, sometimes in more permanent ways, foster care, adoption, different things like that. You know, God in, wants us and encourages us in the very ordinary places of life. Say, I'll be there. I'll, I'll be there. I'll be right where you need me in these ordinary ways. And you're not just going to squeak by. Uh, this is what I, I love about this. You know, oftentimes uh, we, we read these miracles and they come across very flat. Um, I, I remember when, when uh, Moses strikes the rock in the wilderness and the water comes out and he feeds, or, you know, gives the whole crowd to drink. I, I think about a small trickle of water, but if you're going to give everybody and the livestock to drink, it was a great gush of water, a flood of water. These miracles aren't, aren't just trickles. And the same thing here. Jesus doesn't just give everybody a couple crumbs. Everybody eats and is satisfied. They, they are full. They've had plenty. No, I got to push back from the table. I couldn't eat another wafer. I mean, it's, it, everybody has uh, enough and is satisfied. So much so that as I alluded to, the disciples go through and they each come back with a whole basket full, more than they had to start with. You know, Jesus isn't just helping us squeak by. He is going to give us in abundance. Now, sometimes it's hard for us to see. I'm sure when all that abundance was scattered out among the 5,000 or the 10,000 or the 15,000, however many it were, it was difficult to see the abundance until you started getting the testimony and they came back with their arms laden and they said, look it. This is, what, this is what God has done for us. He has given us to us in abundance. And I think, you know, it was almost sacramental for those disciples. Something so tangible that speaks to God's supply. That speaks to God's presence. So they're going out and, and Peter and John can say, silver and gold have I none. But such as I have, I give to you because I know it's enough. I carried that basket. I know I know that God is not scant in his giving, but he gives above and beyond what we could ask or imagine, as Paul puts it. Why is that? This is the last thing, and I, I do want you to see it. It's because of who is in the middle of this whole thing, and that's Jesus. You know, these John oftentimes calls the miracle signs. It's not to say that they are merely symbolic, as if they, they didn't actually happen, that the dead weren't raised or that 5,000 weren't fed. No, these things actually happen, real, you know, the supernatural comes into our material world, points to the reality of who God is for our certainty that we may know, that we may have confidence, that we may, that we may trust. 
But that doesn't mean that they aren't uh, portraying a deep truth. We talked about that when we talked about John chapter 2 and Jesus turning the water into wine. That was a giant neon sign for, for that Israelite community because they knew that the Messiah, when he came, the mountains would drip with sweet wine. And so when they see this wine being, uh, they're like, yep, that's the Messiah. Well, it's exactly the same here. Listen to the prophecy from Isaiah 35. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Each of the gospel writers makes us the point to say, They are in a desolate place, but this desolate place becomes a place of abundance. Why? Because the Messiah has come. Because this is who Jesus is. Jesus is coming to make the dry places blossom, to make roses bloom in the desert, because he is the Messiah. He's the great shepherd. He, he leads them to, to, to places. I think it's in John where it talks about they gathered on the grass. What, what's going on here? You know, here they're in the wilderness, the grass. Well, this is the good shepherd. He, he knows how to lead the sheep to, to the places where they can graze, where they can find refreshment. Jesus is the great shepherd. Jesus is the the one who's greater than Moses. Moses gave them manna, bread, in the wilderness. But now one who has has come who is greater than Moses. Elisha fed a hundred men with 20 loaves of barley, 2 Kings chapter 4. Now one who has come who is greater than Elisha. Jesus has come as the inaugurator, as the Messiah, because he is the bread of life. He is the one that when we feed on him, when we partake of him, we cross over from death to life. Jesus is the one who has come to set the table. You notice the the way that the, the language goes here. After taking the five loaves, this is verse 16, and the two fish, he looks up to heaven, he says a blessing over them, he breaks the loaves, he gives them to the disciples to set before the crowd. This is the Eucharistic formula. You know, this is the the table of the Lord in in which our Savior knows that he is going to go to the cross, that he is going to break his body. He is going to shed his blood in order that we might have life, in order that we might be filled so that we can go out, not in our own strength, but in the strength that he gives us, and we can preach the gospel, and we can offer healing and touch to those around us that are in need of that tangibility. This is who Jesus is. And this is the central point, the central point of encouragement for the disciples. Because they know we have nothing. Take no tunic, take no bread, take no staff. You know, how are we going to feed them, Lord? You feed them. Because I'm in the middle of it. And because I am the one who has come to inaugurate this kingdom. Here's the question. Two questions. First of all, uh, where are you? Are you in the crowd, you know, still trying to decide who Jesus is? 
come to him, you know, the, the good news is he will welcome you. You are not an interruption. You know, Jesus went out with his disciples to have a retreat. These people came and interrupted their time. He did not view them as an interruption. He does not view you as an interruption. He sees you. He knows you. He has compassion on you. And he will welcome you. Secondly, if you're not in the crowd, maybe you're a disciple. You're a disciple, but like these disciples, you say, I don't have it. I, I, I worry about my lack of knowledge. I worry about my lack of personality. I worry about the lack of gifts that I have. I worry about the circumstances that are threatening to overwhelm my life. I worry about all of these different things. How can I be your woman? How can I be your man? Jesus says, I am enough. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He who comes to me will overflow. The Holy Spirit, like rivers of life, will come out of you, and you will have the strength that you need. How are you going to be satisfied? It's not ten times the amount of money that you have, or five, or even double you're satisfied when you come to Christ and you truly feed on him and you enjoy this one. Jonathan Edwards put it this way, the enjoyment of God is the only happiness with which our souls can be satisfied. We can have fathers and mothers, husbands, wives, children, company of earthly friends. These are all but shadows. The enjoyment of God is the substance. These are but scattered beams. God is the sun. These are but streams. God is the fountain. These are but drops. God is the ocean. May you find yourself lost in the ocean of our God who loves us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for the promise that you are our great shepherd that you are the one who is greater than Moses, that you are the manna from heaven that has come to give us life. Lord, I pray that each heart would leap with joy, leap with joy over the treasure uh, of knowing you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.